Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio. Byline Radio, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Meghan and Harry on Netflix, the halftime verdict. We've now had the chance to watch three of the six episodes in their self-produced docu-series. What does that tell us about them, the media and the monarchy? We're going to be joined by Ava Vidal, comedian and journalist. We're going to be joined by R.S. Locke, writer and US-based royal commentator, and by Mick Wright, media pundit as well. But I'd really be interested to hear what you have got to say as well. Maybe you've watched one, two, or all three of the episodes so far. I'd love to have you involved. Great to see R.S. Locke there. Great to see uh, Mick Wright there. I think Ava is there as well. So you guys, to join in, you've just got to tap the microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, assuming you're on your phone and you've got the... Twitter app downloaded to your phone. So just tap that microphone in the bottom left. That will tell me that you want to get access and I will let you in. If anybody else wants to join in as well, I'll by all means uh, welcome one or two listeners a little bit later on. But I do want to hear from Ava, from RS and from Mick first. So they just got to tap the microphone in the bottom left hand of their phone and that way they can join in. Some of the themes that emerged for me during those first three episodes. One was the notion of protection of children. Harry, who I thought came across as a hugely sympathetic figure, talked very much about how his mum, Lady Diana, Princess Di, tried to protect him as a young man. There was perhaps an implication that his dad, Prince Charles, didn't quite do so much to protect him as well. And the question of protection was also relevant, I thought, to Meghan Markle. Uh, much fun has been made of her curtsy. She was kind of taking the pee a little bit, wasn't she, about the curtsy that she was expected to do. And there are people, of course, saying, well, she joined the royal family. What could she expect? But did she really know? And is it reasonable for people to have to kind of shut themselves away or be subject to the whims of tabloid editors and the paparazzi in terms of living their daily life, whether they're royals or not. So I thought that was one really key theme. Another theme that emerged was that of Brexit and the upsurge in racism online and in the British media as well. David Olasoga, I thought, spoke really well about that. And he wasn't saying necessarily that Brexit was responsible for some of the racist animosity that there unquestionably was towards Meghan Markle. But he was just saying, here you go, here's this phenomenon, here's this fact of British life, some of which anyway, in the case of some people, was driven by a dislike for others, in inverted commas. And Meghan Markle, to an extent, I think his argument was, seemed to get caught up in that. So I think it's a really fascinating three episodes, really. I wasn't quite sure about the soft focus. There was something in the the, the filmmaker's way in which she filmed the, the key characters, uh, Meghan and Harry, and other guests as well. It was great to see uh, Meghan's mum in there. The kind of the soft focus background. It made it uh, the love story, which, which was very good, by the way, very touching, but it did make it seem a little bit Mills and Boone for the purposes of the byline radio, though. We're probably less concerned about that, though I think it was important to show it than with the questions around media and race and the status of the monarchy. So as I say, we'll be hearing from Ava in a moment. We're going to hear from RS in a moment. Got up very early 
on the west coast of the United States to be with us and to Mick Wright as well. Before we do, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio is funded by subscriptions too. The Byline Times, that's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you cannot read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There is no big media corporation behind us. We rely instead on ordinary listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. So please head over to bylinetimes.com. That's our news-breaking website to find out how you can subscribe to the newspaper. And a subscription costs from as little as £3 a month. So if you can, please take out a subscription. It's Christmas as well. Maybe you want to think about taking out a subscription as a gift for somebody else. More details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. OK, I've rabbited on enough. As I say, we're going to hear from Ava Vidal. We're going to hear from RS Locke. We're going to hear from Mick Wright. And if you want to join in and you've got something sensible to say, no trolls, please. But if you've got something sensible to contribute, something that you feel is missing from our conversation, hard to imagine, I know, then by all means, request a microphone. I think you can only do that if you're listening on Twitter and you've got the app downloaded. And as I say, if you've got something sensible to say, we'll let you on and and come and share your perspective as well. But let's start with R.S. Locke then, US-based writer and media commentator, got up early on a Sunday to speak to us. I think it's only fair to start with R.S. R.S., what do you make of the first three episodes of the docu-series? Welcome along, by the way. Thank you, and uh, good good morning to folks, and uh, a good good day to the folks who are in the UK. Um, for me, I thought the overall the docu series going in, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, you know, the trailers that we saw from Netflix, you just never know whether they're telling you what the actual story is going to be about, or if it's a little bit more on the sensational side. So, um, I think going in, I was just open to you know, what is the story that Harry and Meghan want to share? Um, and so what I found interesting was you did get some of their personal story and kind of going back to how they met and uh, the early days of their relationship. And I'd say, Adrian, unlike you, I did find that interesting just because it's some of the basic facts of their life that have been distorted um, in the media because it's coming from secondhand information, whether that be from biographers, from royal reporters, um, you know, the anonymous sources in the palace, you just see just some basic facts that are incorrect. But in this kind of world of anonymous reporting um, within the Royal Rota, folklore and kind of this anecdotal stories that just keep getting repeated become fact. Um, and so I, I thought that that was interesting that they wanted to make a point of, you know, this is our life. And also like, these statements have, have formed people's opinion about our character and who we are, because we haven't really been able to show people that, show people who we are um, in, a, in a more more public way. So for me, that was interesting, but I also felt like that was just an entry point to the discussions that you mentioned around the media um, and around race. And so I think it's a little bit of a, you know, we'll, we'll give you something sweet while we feed you the medicine um, approach where, you know, let's show you cute pictures of Archie and Lily and kind of talk to you about their romance. But at the same time, we're going to explain the legacy of imperialism and the ties to the monarchy and how that goes all the way back to, you know, the first slave ship 
all the way to when slavery slavery was abolished in the UK. So to me, a lot of this first volume is background, context, and setting up a framework for what they want to get into a deeper discussion into in volume two. Um, and so to me, that's that's this questions around the media and the, the relationship between the royal reporters and kind of British tabloids and the palace, and then also kind of how racism and the homogenous reporting um, in terms of the actual just British media and the way those newsrooms look, how that factored into how discussions of race and racism uh, took place as, as it um, relates to Megan. Yeah, and just to say, I know Miss Frieda wants to join in. Miss Frieda, I will let you join in in a little while, but let's just hear from our guests first. I want to bring in Ava Vidal on this. And RS picked up there, Ava, on the the link between monarchy and colonialism and slavery, the first slave ship commissioned by Elizabeth I. And I think RS is right, you know, the, the sugar of the relationship was sugarcoating for what I think for many UK viewers would be a bitter pill to swallow, which is acknowledgement of the monarchy's very close relationship with colonialism and slavery. One of those things that in the UK generally is not discussed in the mainstream media, but is there and is, as we saw in the documentary, is written into so many features of our life. Afwa Hirsch was extremely good on that, just talking about the, the way in which that you see these symbols of colonialism and slavery in so many places that, that you don't even think of it. You don't even mention it in Order of British Life. But the documentary really brought that forcefully home, I thought, ever. Well, it did and it didn't. I mean, David Olagoza was on... Olagoza, sorry, is it Olagoza? Sorry, Olagoza. I don't know. Yeah. sat there and seriously said that Meghan, the Commonwealth uh, could relate to Meghan because she looks like the majority of the Commonwealth. And I know I was sitting there going, is this guy for real? Is he joking? Does he have cataracts? What is he talking about? That doesn't make sense. I think there could have been a more honest conversation. I think I didn't really see many black British contributors on there who have uh, ties to the Commonwealth, like through their parents, and who have really lived that stuff, that would be the objection that I would have to it. But, you know, it, it was also a love story. It was, do it was doing several things at once. Mm. I, I mean, I take your reservation there, and uh, obviously, you know, you're entitled to have that view about what David said, but I still think... It's not just a view, Adrian, come on now. Look no, no, at the Commonwealth, not... look at no, Meghan, the, 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 who admits herself, yeah. she passes for white. That does not look like the Commonwealth. Come on. I, I suppose my point is, though, that the bigger picture, I mean, and her, as she would describe it, I think her biracial heritage was something that she addressed. But my, my point, I think, was that what David and what Afwa were talking about was the, the way in which colonialism and slavery are embedded in Britain today, in modern Britain, in a way that we rarely acknowledge and which nevertheless played out in some of the treatments of Meghan Markle. I thought from that point of view, it was quite a strong and a brave statement. OK. <laughs> OK, whatever. <laughs> I think you have to be realistic, OK? We have to be really realistic. This is, you know, 
you have to think about colorism as well that also comes into it and comes into the treatment of people in this country you had two biracial people from this country speaking about um experiences that black people in this country have and they're seeing it through that lens that's the point that i'm making there were lots of other voices i felt that that you know, they're going to choose who they want to choose. But I just had to make that point because it was such a ridiculous point And it was actually quite insulting to me. Let me bring in uh, Mick Wright. And Mick, we haven't yet heard, I suspect, the, the full onslaught of the Sussexes against the British media. But I thought the context in which Harry grew up, which involved the death of his mother being chased in Paris by the paparazzi, the role of the media in both hounding her and the two princes as well, that kind of setting the tone, if you like, for the world which Harry and Meghan then came to inhabit, I thought that was done very well, very clear. Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. I think, I think the really interesting thing about the media response to the first three episodes is that basically what you're saying, I mean... Um, I've just made a really good point. Like they've chosen who they have to speak there, right? This is a documentary that is a, it's it's an autobiography, right? And so the way that journalists are um, attacking it or getting into fact checking it, no one is a um, entirely um, reliable narrator of their own life. They just aren't, right? And what people say five years ago about their life will be different to what they say today. So I think a lot of the analysis is based around, well, this is like a news report and it must have the um, factuality of news reporting, but it's not. It's, it's autobiography of two people who are telling their story. And so, you know, to um, uh, draw on that palace statement that, uh, that hacks like to talk about a lot, recollections will vary. They will, but it's not a, a correct way to address it, to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, um, Harry thought differently back in 2005 than he does now. Well, because he's changed and grown as a man and, and, and his perspective has changed. Similarly, you know, uh, the notion that, like, um, for instance, their engagement story was told one way to the media initially and is now different in this. Well, that's because they're being able to tell it themselves rather than through the prism of what the palace might have wanted to be told or uh, through... Uh, being interviewed by a journalist like that it is diff it's going to be different so I think that's a key thing to look at with a lot of this analysis it's flawed because it's it's sort of a demanding uh, quality for uh, you know a certain um, quality from it that you wouldn't demand from other places and certainly um, stories told by say William and Kate aren't subjected to such heavy fact checking yeah, and uh, as a kind of self-penned autobiography, as it were, as you say, it's going to be partial, isn't it? And uh, I think, you know, we can't expect the kind of BBC rules or the Channel 4 rules to apply here. You know, this is on a streaming service, which is not subject to the same rules that Ofcom would require of a british based broadcaster, but it also is very clearly their story. So uh, it's unrealistic and unfair, I think, to expect it to be to be anything else than it is. Well, I think also other, uh, uh, other stories and, 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 frankly, fictions told to us by the royal family are not subjected to this kind of in, in, intense uh, dissection. And there's a reason for that, you know, which is that the royals, um, are allowed to get away with telling uh, myths and legends about themselves that aren't picked apart very much at all. 
the death of the Queen illustrated that to us in a great deal and previous to that, the death of Prince Philip. You know, we were told stories about these people that were not very realistic at all, even from broadcasters, especially from broadcasters like the BBC. And the story of the royal family includes, as the film made clear, the history of slavery and colonialism. It includes the story of Prince Andrew. And I don't want to labour that point here because we're discussing something else. But the fact is that a sum of money was paid by uh, Prince Andrew uh, to a woman who apparently he had never met. You know, we, we don't know the full story of that. So uh, one member of the royal family is having his behaviour, i.e. Prince Harry, very, very closely scrutinised. Another has not had his behaviour so closely scrutinised, or at least not until very recent times anyway. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, and, and, and even now, the story of that is not adequately scrutinised to the extent of, you know, we're pretty sure that the money to pay to do that payoff came from the Queen. But the questions are not asked about, well, why did the Queen, you know, essentially... Uh, uh, pay off a legal settlement for for her son who was accused of these things and you know why is Megan consistently presented as this some um, as this uh, you know uh, woman who is uh, cha- made, uh, uh, manipulating Harry to believe certain things you know th- I'm the same age as Harry 38 year old man and uh, yet again today in the papers this morning it's all oh well Megan has made him do this that or the other this is a man who's been to war this is a man who who has pretty much everything given to him throughout his whole life, why is this suddenly um, being framed as this woman who's manipulating him? It's to do with race. It's to do with misogyny. It's very clear. It's very clear. Meanwhile, not so much as talked about the influence of, you know, a a, a, a known convicted and now dead sex offender, um, Jeffrey Epstein, on, on Prince Andrew. It's not. Even if people say they're scrutiny of Prince Andrew, it's not still not to this level. It's still not to this level. It's incredible. Ava, did you take any positives out of the first three episodes? I did take positives from it. I don't think because I've pointed out something that's glaringly obvious and kind of offensive means I didn't take anything positive from it. I thought it was good. Um, I thought that, you know, like they said, it was a love story. It was interesting. It was nice. It was sweet. She looks pretty. She has nice frocks. Um, I just think that... When it comes to this whole world thing, I think that the race thing has to be laboured a little bit more because she said herself she was not treated like a black woman. And I think for a lot of us in this country, um, whether you be from Caribbean or, or, or African descent or, or other, I mean, I think that, I think I said it on Twitter, that what I probably should have said on the podcast is, the reason why it's resonated so much and people are going, oh, how are you speaking up for this pampered princess? She doesn't even look black or whatever. And black people are shouting, oh, yes, yeah, she doesn't. But as soon as people realise that she had a black mother, these are the kind of treatments that we get. And what Mick says is absolutely right. I mean, that is misogynoir 101. To say that a, a black woman is so bewitching and, and she can you know, charm this man away from his family and everything that he's ever known is so offensive on so many levels. And you can see examples of it throughout history. Um, Places in America, for instance, the reason why black women wear like 
you know, got to wear head wraps and stuff was because they said if black women are going around showing their hair with all the nice braids and fancy hairstyles, they'd be bewitching white men away from their white wives and stuff like that. Black enslaved women were often accused of seducing slave masters and stuff like that. I just think there's there, there are uncomfortable things that were brought up in that documentary that need further conversation. But yeah, I did like it. I like them anyway. I like a good love story. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> RS, how was it viewed in the United States? You know, I I was interested and I actually did a, a group watch um, with some friends of mine on Friday just to kind of see with people who are not as, you know, close to this stuff and are just watching it as any other person who has a Netflix subscription, uh, what they thought. Um, I think what they told me was, you know, Harry and Meghan come across as, you know, likable and compelling um, and so the, the story part of it and getting to know them and kind of see them in a way that you wouldn't on, you know, as they were doing royal engagements and the like, uh, that that was interesting and that that drew people in. Uh, and then I think the pieces around the media um, and really, as, as Harry talked about his experience as a child um, and you saw the clips with Princess Diana trying to protect them. Um, I think particularly that uh, that moment where they had the children on the ski trip um, and you had Will, you had Harry, uh, Beatrice and Eugenie um, being forced to do this equivalent of a photo call um, in the middle of their vacation and just seeing how uncomfortable they all were. I think that really helped to bring to mind the baggage that Harry is bringing into kind of this current situation that this isn't just about Megan and the, the media's treatment of her. It's also Harry being uncomfortable in that position um, and, and uncomfortable with the, with the relationship that the media has had the whole time. And so I, I think that was really one of the takeaways that they had. Um, and then I was in a, it, the group was uh, largely black women. And so to Ava's point, there were questions around, um, Megan's statement about, you know, not feeling like she was treated like a black woman until she got to the UK. And the thing I pointed um, the group to was the Archetypes podcast, um, the episode, the diva episode that Megan did with Mariah Carey. They went into a pretty detailed discussion about their experience, both as mixed race women and growing up and, and what that experience was like. And this whole um, challenge to figure out how to how to fit in, um, and and so I thought in the Archetypes podcast they better explained what that experience was, and Megan was able to, you know, talk in some detail about what that meant for her, and they didn't do that as effectively in the TV show, and mm -hmm. so from that perspective, I I was able to kind of give give a little background and context that helped to clarify things. Yeah. Uh, there was a line in the uh, Sex Pistols classic, God Save the Queen, where uh, Johnny Rotten, as he used to be known, John Lydon, sings, she ain't no human being. Now, royalists were very angry about that. It's going back a long time now. Uh, RS, you're far too young to remember it. 1977. Uh, but when he was questioned on that, John Lydon, who in later years, by the way, has emerged as a monarchist, said that it wasn't a personal dig at the Queen. I think most fair-minded people would acknowledge did a you know very dutiful job 
uh, as head of state for the UK. But it was about the way in which the personal characteristics of an individual are subsumed within the institution. You know, you have to be a certain way. And that speaks, I think, to the very rigid rules around the monarchy. And Harry, I think, as the only way he could be himself has been to break free of that. And to break free of it comes, as, as he has discovered, at a huge personal cost. So, I, I mean, aside from the, the issues around Meghan and the question of her heritage and so on, I, I just think it, it says something rather disturbing that we have this institution, which is the, the, the head of the UK state, but which people who want personality, people who want independence, cannot belong to if, if they cross a certain line. I did think that was interesting just because there's this notion of, and, and Harry talked about it as uh, fitting the mold. Mer uh, Megan has talked about it in the past as being told that she had to be 50% of herself um, and basically to kind of make herself smaller within the, in order to fit within the institution and to not overshadow others. And I just feel like with Harry in particular, a lot of the, personality traits and kind of his instincts and his charm those are the things that have always been you know revered and that the British public has loved him for and why he was you know a little bit of an outlier within the institution is the charisma that he brought and his connection with people and so to for Harry that seemed to be okay as long as he was seen as a trio with William and Kate and then it was, hey, you have the three musketeers. This is the new, um, the future of the monarchy. And in some ways, Harry's charisma was able to kind of bring out and, and almost act as a halo uh, for William and Kate on engagements, whereas, you know, he was able to draw out some of their, you know, playfulness and humor in a way that maybe if they were on an engagement by themselves, you wouldn't necessarily see. Whereas I think, as you bring in Megan into that dynamic, now you have someone who has a similar kind of charisma as Harry, but now instead of it being a threesome, now you basically get to two disparate couples. And so it's no longer Harry providing the halo to the trio. Now you have William and Kate are doing their work. Harry and Megan are doing their work. And I think that that's where a lot of the challenge be lied because the the notion of a fab four was a media concoction that never really had any legs. And I think once that became apparent, not only because they had different, the two couples have very different working styles and interests, I think that's where things started to break down is all of the kind of charisma and, you know, personal uh, empathy that people treasured in Harry when you have kind of Harry and Meghan together and all of a sudden they are the ones who are getting the headlines, they are the ones who are um, getting the focus, that became an issue within the institution because you they wanted the spotlight on the airs. Mm. Uh, Mick, what did you make of the British media reaction to the series so far and, and particularly the tabloid reaction? Well, firstly, I, th I, well, I think there's one thing just in terms of the end of your question there is that what we tend to do is give 
um, is, is say it's the tabloids, right? It's the tabloids that are to blame for this. But actually, I've got a real issue with, with uh, the so-called broadsheets. Um, the Telegraph is one of the worst papers for this. It's obsessed um, with, with Meghan and Harry in, in lots of horrible ways. And even paper, I say even, papers like The Guardian uh, like to do what they used to do with reality TV in the early days of that, which is say, oh, well, we're kind of above this, but we have to write about the reaction to it. And in doing that, they sort of um, replicate and um, and uh, push forward the same kind of issues that you get from the tabloids. So seeing how the sun responds to it, calling Megan Woko Ono, which again, you know, drawing on the racist depiction of a of another successful woman who uh, married a famous man. Um, it, you, you see that from the sun. And you think, well, it's exactly what I'd expect from the sun. Um, but it's there in the other papers that, that think of themselves as better than that. Uh, and I, I think one of the reasons that um, they have this attitude to Harry now is Harry is a, is a person who, as a younger man, was, was racist, was, was uh, you know, dressed as a nut, dressed as a Nazi at one point for, a, uh, for a, a fancy dress party without thinking about the implications of that. And what he's become is someone who has um, a, tried to and started to address uh, the things, you know, the, the, in, the, in, the inherent bias that he, he experienced from being in that royal family. And what the papers liked about him in the old days is when he was a bad boy, is that they could sort of forgive him for his bad boy antics or whatever. Uh, but it didn't force them to uh, recognise and, and face up to their own racism, which is, you know, constant and still there and very present. Uh, you know, and it, I still come back to that, that that headline that was shown again in the documentary of accusing Meghan of being straight out of Compton. Firstly, what's wrong with Compton, as Meghan says in the documentary? But also, secondly, everyone knew what that implication was, you know? drawing on the NWA song titles, imply making implications. And as Dora says in the, um, uh, in the documentary, you know, uh, showing all these places she's never lived to imply a very different thing. And, and it comes back to what Ava said earlier as well about, you know, where Megan said, uh, um, you know, I wasn't treated as, as black when, when she was in the US. What happens here is watch how... Um, how the media treated her from the very start, how they looked at things, how they started to invent um, you know, new protocols around royal hair that had never existed before. And we know that black women's hair, women of mixed races' hair, it, it's a hugely political thing. And they knew exactly what they were doing there. And now what is happening with the response to this documentary is just a yet another outbreak of gaslighting where the media as a whole, the, the press mainly, but you know, the press as a whole um, is pretending it never did any of those things or that she's just imagining it and saying, oh, well, we were quite nice about her to start with. Well, they were, but again, it was like a, it's like a protection racket. We're nice about you as long as you do what we need you to do, as long as you tolerate our, um, the way we frame you in the press, as long as you don't complain about that. Uh, and that is why William and Kate get a, a better run of it because they're happy, not happy, but they let things happen like the Daily Mail, uh, Mail on Sunday putting out calendars of their children. That is that is tacitly approved by by them. But meanwhile, when Meghan and Harry choose to have their own children in a documentary that they have control over, that's well, look at that. See, they don't care about privacy. It's, <laughs> it's an it's that is, is a philosophical um, 
grotesquerie that the media loves to engage in now say well see look they don't care about privacy no we all have uh the right to talk about our lives to share pictures from our lives Uh, but and that's the choice they're making it's me sharing a picture of myself or of my stepdaughter doesn't mean that that allows the daily mail to put a picture of her on the front page doesn't you know and we know that intrinsically we know that but the, the, what this all comes down to i think ultimately is is a big philosophical question which is you look at it and say well harry has no ability to totally leave the royal family his birth was a narrative event so all that he's doing now he and megan are doing now is people who are very conscious of narrative you know she's an actress he has been built into narrative since his very birth is they're just taking control of that narrative and the press and the wider media do not like that because they've been used to framing that narrative and using these people like characters. And it's upsetting to them to see the characters say, well, actually, no, we're not these people that you say we are. And you still get the thing of, well, why didn't they just shut up and go away? Well, it's not possible. Had they disappeared, there would be newsletter, the newspaper stories saying, what are they up to? What are they doing now? Why haven't we heard from Harry and Meghan? There's absolutely no way they can win with these newspapers absolutely no way so they have to play the game their way and they have to um you know present their stories i ha- i mean i will say after this documentary and after harry's um biography in uh in january they're gonna have to come to a new stage because they told this story now in their own way and then there'll be a new stage that they'll have to move to but i think they will i think they will i don't think they'll keep telling the same story over and over again like mick said I agree with much of what he said. I think that this country, I think it's quite surprising for people because Americans are quite avert with their racism. So they were kind of offended that Meghan actually said, no, I was treated worse here. Because a lot of people don't realise England taught America everything they know about racism, except how to keep quiet about it. Um, The racism here is so insidious and so horrible. And you had characters here like Sarah Vine, who was saying um, there was much made. They went through it and they picked at it. It's just so spiteful and vindictive. And the the only thing they could find was to say that when Megan was um, taking the mick out of, you know, she was on a journey, a car journey, do you know how to curtsy? And she did this huge dramatic thing that you would, you know, she referenced Prince princess diaries with Anne Hathaway so probably her version of royalty was something she's seen a lot on films and stuff so she did this very huge exaggerated bow um, Sarah Vine was like how oh, does racism only go one way Nadine Doris was like I can't bear to see any more of it there was so much made even by left-wing journalists who were claimed to be left-wing who, who like Mick said are always so above it but they were making stupid comments as well oh my god look at Harry's face he's so uncomfortable with her oh my god he looks really unhappy there and I saw quite a few people who I thought I knew better than you know that were joining into all of that nonsense as well so I think you know you had MPs there was an MP from a uh, place in Sussex where I went to prep school and had the most horrific racism um, dealt to me and my family every time we went through that village going oh my gosh this is so awful for Sussex so awful it's like no Sussex is just awful full stop and racist and I'm concentrate just, on that listeners in Sussex who would beg to differ off <laughs> no they can differ all they like I can just say what my experiences are um, like concentrate on that and stop acting like you know this is this is the be all and end all because they spoke about their experiences it does show when you are a person of color or you defend a person of color 
and you speak about your experiences, the backlash is huge in this country. It's absolutely huge. As well as, uh, I thought, you know, quite a blunt telling and uh, long overdue telling in many respects of uh, British colonial history. Uh, I thought the, the link to Brexit in terms of the timing was not coincidental. It, David Olasoga drew that out and although there was not, you know, clearly not a direct line between Brexit and racist insults aimed towards Meghan Markle, anybody of, of any kind of, and I'm putting this inverted commas, sort of non-British background will have been aware of and sensitive to the, the upsurge in racist commentary around the time of Brexit. And that's not to say that all Brexiters were racist by any stretch, and I'm not saying that. But it's undeniable that there was some of that in the air around the EU referendum. And that seemed to be, to some extent, the argument of the, the documentary anyway, bound up in some of this othering of Meghan Markle. What do you think? I mean, I think that she would have been othered anyway. Uh, I think, as I said on our podcast, there was like lots of different factors and stuff. They were just dying to have a go at her. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I spoke about it a lot on Channel 4 News, Newsnight at the time, that the racism that was um, unleashed, if you want to say, people became very comfortable with their racism. Like I was in certain areas, like I remember being called, um, you know, the, the short version of Gollywog in King's Cross Station around Brexit, um, that I was... Um, attacked around Brexit and somebody, this guy threw sort of like a liquid in my face and stuff and was saying he's voting for Brexit because of, I won't use the word, like me. I mean, it what, people were like, what on earth is going on? They, they, it was a very, very hostile, very racist environment that I think hasn't gone, hasn't gone away. And I do think that like the media have to accept responsibility um, they're saying they want to have a whole platform of views, but I do remember doing this week um, before Andrew Neil left for the great <laughs> for um, GB News or whatever. Um, I remember doing that and actually having to share a dressing room with Nigel Farage, and he was actually boasting about the fact that he has dragged the political discourse to the right. Um, I think it was, yeah, I, th I think Brexit definitely had had a had an effect, and, and walking into that. I think it affects all of us. I really do. I'm not sure Meghan would have been received better if we didn't have Brexit, though. I think just by the nature that she's a mixed race woman marrying into that family, they would have they would have found things. Yeah. Uh, somebody on Twitter, by the way, there's been quite a lively discussion uh, following your comments uh, earlier on, Ava. And uh, one of our listeners says that they totally understand your point. This was in relation to people being white passing or you know, appearing white, which may not quite be the same as white passing. And this listener says that they just wanted to know that they totally understand your point and I felt like it was brushed off. But I, I don't mean to brush it off. I, you know, I, under, I understand that it's important, though, as somebody, you know, of broadly sort of white origin myself, you know, I can't pretend to understand it. So just let's be clear you know I'm, I'm not dismissing any of that that you said earlier on as as unimportant or as irrelevant in this discussion and i hope you didn't feel that no not at all i mean it's just you know 
it's um I don't know. Anyway, not at all. I just think, and I don't have a problem with white passing people either. But I do think, it, you know, she is in a unique position to say, well, look at my appearance and look at the treatment that I am getting. And I think that should open a further discussion. Well, what do you think people who look like, uh, you know, dark who are dark skinned get? You know what I mean? Who are just visibly, if she gets this amount of animosity. So I just think it opens a conversation. That's all. Yeah. Uh, RS, we've got three more episodes to go. Obviously, we're in the world now of speculation, but at least we've got a sense of the parameters that have been set by the documentary and the tone of the documentary. What do you think we're likely to see in the next three episodes? And what would you like to see addressed that perhaps hasn't been addressed to this point? Well, the the volume one ends right before the wedding. So we'll get into basically... 2018 and and going forward in volume two based on the guests that we've seen in the trailer what i presume we're going to see is now again as they've laid out the framework for here's how the royal rota works here are the press organizations that are part of it here's the access that they're given and here is the trauma as uh, as harry described it and exploitation that results and now i think we're going to get into and here is how that played out with Harry and Meghan over the course of the, you know, two years that they were working Royals. And so, you know, we saw Christopher Boozy who uh, was in the trailer and he has done a lot of research. So he's the CEO of Bot Sentinel. Yep. Um, they've done a lot of research on the hate accounts um, and kind of the, uh, the harassment and cyberbullying and abuse that uh, Meghan has experienced online and drawing into, you know, where did that, where are the origins, what are the accounts, what's the nexus of it, and also how that has been amplified by royal commentators and mainstream media, so that now you have this interplay between what's said online, a lot of times, which is, you know, speculation, misinformation, and, and disinformation, specifically as it relates to Megan and her family. Um, you know, they're the pregnancy truthers and, and others. And so how that then gets put into mainstream media by people like Angela Levin um, and Lady Colin Campbell. And so you have this interchange. So I, I assume that Christopher is going to talk about that. Um, I wrote a I wrote an article about um, some of his research uh, last year. And then we also saw uh, Megan's lawyer, uh, Jenny Afia, who was the um, head, head lawyer for her case against the uh, Associated Newspapers for the copyright and privacy case uh, when uh, the, the Mail on Sunday printed the private letter uh, that she sent her father. So, and it, she expressly says in the trailer that a senior member of the royal household was the one who gave evidence to Ted Verity of the Daily Mail. And so, I, again, I think when in the trailer where you saw Harry talking about stories being leaked, stories being planted, I think we'll get into, you know, really some of the specific instances of, you know, the fact that it's been brushed off that a, a senior member of the royal household gave evidence to a tabloid against another member of the royal household is incredible and when we talk about you know what that means and what 
type of environment Harry and Meghan were working within and also what the royal family allowed um, and is, you know, written plain as day in court documents. Those are the types of things that I think they want to get um, get more oxygen and, and let people understand this is the environment um, when you talk about briefing within households. Like people think it's, you know, the, the petty, you know, small things, but to actually conspire with the tabloids against someone in your own family, that I think is going to be shocking for, for people who didn't follow that story closely. Yeah, yeah. And that's shocking, that's shocking both for, you know, at a human level, but also for the institution of the monarchy. And I was just going to ask you what you thought, RS, because to me, the one figure missing in all this was Harry's dad was King Charles. And when so much time was spent on showing how much Diana sought to protect the princes. And as you say, there was that amazing bit of footage where on the ski slopes, she goes up and puts her hand in the lens of uh, a photographer who's just intruding on them. That was really laboured to effect and you know, underlined Harry's love and appreciation for his mum. Prince Charles was not spoken about in the same way. Now King Charles, of course, and although, of course, you know, nobody presupposes that one documentary would bring down the British royal family, I, I, I think that absence was actually quite striking. And I think over time is likely to damage the reputation, the goodwill that people feel towards the institution of the monarchy and Charles in particular. You know, I think the absence, and, and we'll see what happens in volume two, but I, <laughs> I think the, the absence reflects a couple things. The, it reflects the absence of support, at least publicly, as, as Harry and Meghan were kind of going through this, this pretty brutal um, period in their lives. And Harry talked about that in the Oprah Winfrey interview, the fact that he was so disappointed that his family didn't step up to show more public support. Um, and so I, I think that's part of what we will see in volume two. Um, I, I hope and expect that Harry will talk about that um, and the potentially the times that when when this thing happened, I would have loved to have my family, you know, back us. So, you know, particularly for me, I think it'll be interesting with the uh, the Danny Baker um, controversy over the the images that he released depicting Harry and Meghan as a royal couple with their newborn child as a chimp. And, you know, we've never heard Harry and Meghan talk about that or if, you know, they have to be aware of it at this point, even if they weren't at the time. But I think having them go on the record and talk about what that experience was like for them, um, you know, on the whole, but also what that experience was like to not have anyone from the family step in and say, you know, we won't tolerate this type of racism, that that I think will be very, very compelling TV. Hmm. Uh, Danny Baker's defence was that he meant, I think it was Archie, wasn't it, when Archie was born, was simply a, a performing chimp a la a circus act. And he was blind, really, to the implicit racism in the image. I mean, to, to have such a deaf ear is incredible in 2022 or a couple of years ago when he had it, but that, that was his uh, defense. Uh, Mick, it, it, I mean, it, it's clear, it's clear there's no coming back now. Is there for, for Harry and Meghan 
and the tabloids. I mean, this is a relationship that if it wasn't broken already, and it probably was, they, they've chosen really to smash that relationship to smithereens, not just the tabloids, as you say, but the British press in general. Yeah, and they were right to because it was a protection racket. You know, the, 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 the phrase that's been used a lot um, by, by Harry and others of the invisible contract is absolutely, it's just making that contract more and more visible. Um, and there's been a lot of upset in the uh, in the in the royal press around talk about the rota being essentially just PR for the royals and saying, oh well, you know, sometimes the royals ask us for corrections. That means we don't do PR, but they do do PR. I've said this several times in the past, but I really think it's true. Um, because being made royal correspondent anywhere should not be seen as a promotion, but a demotion, because you end up not doing journalism anymore. I mean, uh, look at, for instance, Johnny Diamond, who used to be known for his very good reporting on 9-11 and as a, as, a, as a really, you know, very good foreign correspondent. He's now a royal correspondent at the BBC and, and he's a joke. Same goes for Nicholas Whitchell. Um, royal correspondent. Royal experts, all of these. Mick, Mick, your line has gone genuinely. I'm not saying this. Um, <laughs> any, no, your, li- your line's really, your line's really poor. I'm mm. struggling to hear you at this point. I don't know if you've walked away to a low reception area, but your line. No, is... I don't ah, you better so now. Yeah, go on. Right, yeah. Sorry. Well, where did what did you where did you lose me? Ages? Well, I think you were you were slating most of the BBC's royal. Well, correspondent well, well, what I, well, what I was saying is that Johnny Diamond was known known for for his brilliant reporting on 9-11 and as a really good foreign correspondent, Nicholas Witchell was, you know, one of the originators of the six o'clock news but as as a, a as a, a, an anchor for that and and a, you know a, a respected reporter. Becoming a royal correspondent has made both of those people pretty laughable to a lot of people. Because royal correspondents, royal experts, all of these people, it is a, it's a form of um, soap opera reporting. And what we're getting back from people in the royal rota, people who are royal correspondents, they're saying, oh, no, we do proper reporting. You know, sometimes uh, we get corrections from the palace or they object to what we say. But realistically, royal reporting is not reporting. Stuff about, for instance, the Queen being exempted from equality law, that wasn't broken by royal reporting. Um, Prince Andrew, those stories weren't broken by royal reporters. The people who, who, whose focus as reporters is on the royal family don't break stories about that family because they, they live a life of access journalism where they couldn't do their jobs if the royals didn't um, you know, acquiesce to their presence. So, you know, royal reporter is a complete misnomer. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you know, as a, I, I would sort of defend both Johnny Diamond and Nicholas Whishell and say neither of them is a, a joke reporter. But I think the the bigger point that you made, I know, no, but you see, Adrian, I didn't say they're joke reporters. Uh, I said they're. It said that many people see them as increasingly laughable because mm, of the things they have to say. Yeah, I think, I think the role. Themselves. I think the role that you describe is. Very questionable, isn't it? In in all mainstream news organisations, because what are you as a as a royal reporter? What is you? I, yeah. I think the same is true in many respects as well. I would say about sports reporters. You know, if you report on a Premier League club, but you know that's getting off the subject. Um, go on. But you, you know, that, there are still sports reports who break who break stories. Um, I'd say it's less so in, in it, it's not as bad in sports reporting as royalty. You know, 
because things shift and move in sports. You know, the Royals are pretty much there. But, you know, they're not going anywhere. You can't sack the manager. Yes. Uh, by the way, I, I did... Uh, oh, uh, Jen says, defending uh, Danny Baker's tweet is just bizarre, to be honest. He likened Baby Archie to a chimpanzee. That's not a deaf ear. That's racism. Uh, Jen, uh, I didn't defend it. I explained what Danny Baker's defence of it was. I wouldn't seek to defend it for one moment. Uh, it was wrong and it was racist. I agree with you. Uh, let's just make that absolutely clear. Uh, Ava... Uh, where you there? Oh yeah. Let's let's get Ava in for a final comment before we uh, before we wrap up. Ava, I know. Uh, and just to refer to people, by the way, we recorded you and I and RS a fantastic podcast for the Byline Times podcast. It was before we had seen any of these episodes, so but it's still hugely relevant. So check it out at the Byline Times podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You said Ava, you didn't think that anything that was said in this documentary series would change people's views of the monarchy now that you've seen the episodes do you still think that i do because i kind of think that we all went in watching it with you know kind of almost with our minds made up you can see by just the way people are scrambling around the people that don't like them or who are huge monarchists were making excuses for stuff i mentioned sarah vine talking about her taking the mickey out of herself um, curtsying, she's actually said, oh my gosh, does racism only go one way? You've got loads of, and you're like, what? What's that got to do with racism? I think there's just people who are going to see what they want to see. I'm not sure how many minds are going to be changed. I really am not. Well, listen, it's been a great conversation. Apologies to those who wanted to get on, but who haven't. Some of us have got pressing engagements, you know, but uh, that's the only reason we're not getting a few folk on. But it's been great to chat with you, Ava, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Thank to, you. Thank you to uh, our... Before we go, by the way, Ava, is there anything that you haven't said that you wanted to say? I don't want to be accused of shutting anybody up, by the way. <laughs> that tweet really got to you, right? <laughs> no. Well, somebody, think... <laughs> somebody earlier, just to explain that, somebody earlier accused me after the podcast of my Karen question. I think I'm what it is thinking I'm a Karen ever. I think what it is is maybe I make some points that people are uncomfortable with and I think a lot of black people are very used to being shut down and so they are going to see it as like oh why you know as opposed to it just being explorative journalism but it's okay I forgive you. Um, no, I think, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to the next next um, three and we can meet back and discuss it again. Absolutely, we will. Um, uh, Mick, anything you wanted to say before we go? No, I've got to say plenty. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And, um, always good to, uh, it's, it's been and great nice to have you on. And RS, RS we've got to give a special round of applause to our US contributor getting up so early in the morning. Uh, a special gratitude to URS. As I'm speaking to you, by the way, in Birmingham, it's Sunday tea time. And the light is drawing in. That's that's the difference between you and me at this point, RS. But um, thank you for being with us. Anything else you wanted to add, RS? Uh, no, thank you again for uh, not only having me on the podcast, but in the space. Uh, great conversation as always. And look forward to chatting again after uh, volume two. Yeah, we'll get together after volume two. Uh, RS Locke, Mick Wright and Ava Vidal. And I will try and get a few folk on at that point. I'm sorry I haven't done it today because, all right, I'll be honest, I've got my daughter's school concert to go to, her orchestra. Come on, that's got to be a reason enough to end a space, hasn't it? But by all means, pass the word on. Follow at Byline Radio 
and head over as well to at Byline Times Podcast, where you'll see details of all of our podcasts, uh, including the one I did with Ava and with RS Lock. My name is Adrian Goldberg. We are funded for Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast by subscriptions to the Byline Times. If you don't know what that is, well, it's a brilliant monthly newspaper that drops through your letterbox, a good old-fashioned newspaper, and it has content in there that you can't see anywhere else. You can find out how to subscribe to that by heading over to bylinetimes.com. That's to bylinetimes.com. A subscription will make a fantastic Christmas present And it'd be a great present to yourself as well. So thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you all again very soon. But for now, cheers. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.